Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's episode. Hey, guess what? Before we get into it, you might have heard, I am drafted to the two Ramagpies as a part of the Carlton Draft. I'm going to be playing a game, dominating, kicking six, and then resetting at quarter time. For the first time in Carlton Draft history, one lucky Victorian women's community club will get the chance to draft the AFLW GOAT, Erin Phillips, to play as a wild card. How bloody good's that? If you want to enter this now to get her down to your football club, visit thecarltondraft.com.au. That's thecarltondraft.com. 18 plus, drink responsibly. Cobram Estate is the most awarded Australian extra virgin olive oil. Let it be the hero when entertaining family and friends. Cobram Estate extra virgin olive oil is fresh and full of flavour. Perfect for roasting, frying, baking, dressing salads and for dipping bread. Make your food taste even better with a little help from Cobram Estate. Premium quality, great tasting and a versatile healthy alternative. Buy in store at all major retailers. This week on Dylan Friends, Nick Stone. Nick Stone is a former AFL player with Hawthorne, Collingwood and the St Kilda Footy Club. He played 20 games across six seasons in the AFL and has some incredible stories. But there's only one chapter in his journey as he's been able to transition out of the AFL into a very different career. For any Aussies that have been to New York or LA in the last 10 years, I'm sure you've checked out one of his cafes, Bluestone Lane. When he finished football, Nick moved over to New York to work in investment banking. Through working in the US, Nick discovered a gap in the market in the coffee and cafe industry. There was nothing like an Australian latte in the US. With no real experience in hospitality, he launched his first of many cafes in Manhattan in 2010. The story is absolutely unbelievable. He's now in 50 locations in the US. He's a seriously switched on unit. And I took so much out of this chat, and I know you will too, especially if you're someone looking at starting your own business. I hope you enjoy as much as I did. I cannot thank Nick enough for his time and coming into the studio. And next time, when you're in the States and the borders are open, make sure you go and check out one of his cafes. But before we get into a big, big thank you to Bloke in a Bar Lager for all of their love and support with the show. We absolutely love our blokes. Make sure you get on, make sure you jump online, check the store locator for your nearest store, and the next slab of choice, make sure it's a Bloke in a Bar. Let's go. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Welcome to the Dylan Friends Podcast. In many ways, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Tears, tears, tears. Strength. I'm like, I run. She's like, yeah. everyone runs. I'm like, but does everyone go to yeah. the Olympics? <laughs> They're sitting there meditating, going, oh my God, I think I'm meditating. How good is this? I'm meditating. It's like, I had a Wu Tang call. I was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. Just love it's it. knuckle puck time. Yeah. It's like, it's like <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Nick Stone, welcome, Dylan Friends Podcast, my friends. It's an honor, it's a pleasure, it's a privilege to have you in the studio. Thanks, Dill. Nice to be here. Lovely. I like this makeshift studio, actually. You know, it's quite intriguing. Elusive up the stairwell. Reminds me of one of my stores. Um, but yeah, great to be here in a really wet, typical mid-year yes, Melbourne day. It is. It is. Now, so what's your living arrangement at the moment? Obviously, a lot of your business is in the States. You're back here uh, in Australia, in Melbourne at the moment. Congratulations on the birth of your third child. What's yes. how, how does that work? Are you just back to... Well, we're very fortunate we're staying with my parents-in-law. So they're in Brighton, so they're helping us out with three kids under four. And yeah, the new arrival, Clementine, on on Friday, my wife's an absolute hero, Alexandra. And yeah, we're very lucky to stay there and and provide a lot of support because I'm heading back to the States in early July. So um, it's working well. And I think we'll assess later in the year that the continued... Um, elongated hotel quarantine has thrown a bit of a spanner into our plans because it was quite challenging for the kids when they first came back. So yeah, I'm going to go back and and get back to to work over there, and they'll stay here 
for the remainder of the year. Yeah. So the the move to New York, uh, we'll get into that down the track. But at the moment, where are you situated? What's you know day to day like for you, um, running you know Bluestone Lane? Well, at the moment, it's early mornings, that's mm. for sure, on mm. New York hours. But uh, you know, my roles transitioned quite a bit over the years uh, as the business has grown and scaled. But uh, certainly nothing has been as colourful as the last 15, 16 months. Last year was very much focused on, honestly, survival and innovating and pivoting as fast as we could. Um, the amount of variables were just extraordinary. It's, it's hard to grasp it here. And I know that Melbourne's had you know, some, a number of different uh, frantic lockdowns. But just the, the enormity of the situation in the States, you know, we're talking about you know, 33 million positive COVID cases. We're talking about over 600,000 deaths. And uh, in the markets in which we have our largest presence, they were actually sort of ground zero for the most concentrated COVID positive cases. And uh, it really reared its head so dramatically and so quickly in March 2020 when New York went from zero to basically 20,000 cases within two weeks. And it was in already in in uh, Bluestone Lane's business. We had team members. My brother, probably doesn't want me to say this, but my brother was the first person I knew to test positive. And, um, uh, you know, through no one knew what was going on in March. And uh, yeah, it was just, it decimated our business. So we had to change very, very quickly. And the team uh, galvanized around the new way forward and it was just incredible and now we're on this huge rebound and you might have seen this week that both new york and california are fully open now Mm. so they've removed any of the restrictions and in fact if you're vaccinated you don't need to wear a mask at all anymore so um new york's just hit 70 percent of its population the state population are fully vaccinated so um if anything i really hope australia get their act on and start to to go out in droves and i hope the governments really look at what the us have done to vaccinate 300 million people so quickly um because that's the chance to re-engage with the world again and it's in my opinion it's such a shame that you know many cases that that australia is still continuing this really um in many cases, a bit sort of a naive approach mm. to think that you can just close your borders and then there won't be externalities from that that are going to be felt um, for a number of years to come. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I wasn't even, you know, planning on talking about this now, but like <laughs> growing up... I don't know if the listeners No, this, no, mate. but it, it is so interesting because <laughs> even from your point of view, like, you know, personally, I look at someone that would be starting a cafe now or a restaurant and how affected they've been in, in Melbourne, especially because yeah. we've suffered the most with, with COVID lockdowns. Like... How hard would that be realistically, like to run your business model in Victoria at the moment? Like, do you feel for these people that oh, are going absolutely? Through this? I think it's it's traumatic because you you restaurants and hospitality has so much what they call operating leverage, which is your ratio of fixed cost to variable cost. So you have to pay your rent, you have to pay the salaries of your mm. team, you still have to buy sort of produce, even if suddenly you're told you're not allowed to let anyone dine in your restaurant and dealing with that those fixed costs um destroy businesses they put them in a liquidity spiral and um it's just really really hard to plan and you think about also the labor laws um in australia and in the u.s there's there's a continued movement towards predictability of schedule and stability of hours so people know when they go to work what they're getting paid and when they're rostered on 
Now, suddenly, what do you do if you're the proprietor and the government just decides within 24 hours, hey, you're not allowed to operate anymore? What do you do with all your staff mm. that you've committed and you still have to abide by the law? So there's just a number of those sort of challenges that put businesses under so much pressure. And, um, you know, I think the support in Australia generally, the JobKeeper was quite extraordinary, really, considering Australia's talking about still less than a thousand positive cases and if we're using the same ratio as the states we'd be talking about like 2.5 million positive cases if it was you know parity 10 percent thankfully we're not but there was a lot of support but um you know i think the snap lockdown is really it's definitely sort of crushed some spirit but thankfully everyone got behind it and uh and you know it's lifted but uh, i do believe that it's quite extraordinary that uh, Victorians in particular uh, will, and it's a credit to them, that they will uh, listen to the government. And if the government says, listen, we're going into lockdown and everyone abides by it in the majority. But I I hope that they put the same amount of pressure on all governments that they're providing access to the vaccine to the same level of intensity as they they lock, you know, economies down. And uh, that's the thing that I find a bit perplexing. I feel like we should run for parliament. Pattern. I think we should run for the government at the moment. No, It'd be good. Yeah. It'd be very exciting. It's a, it's a horrible job. Like, no, it's terrible. You can't uh, get it wrong. It doesn't attract you know no. the best of breed. I think because it's just so. <laughs> it's it's yeah. I feel so much smarter already talking to you. By the way, I just I, I love this conversation. It's not one that I'd normally. Well, have so with do my I, mates. Bill. It's reciprocal. It's not, so. it's not one that I'd have with my mates. And I'm very. I feel very cool. Um, now, Nick, as much as I love talking about COVID all day, yeah. you have one of my favorite stories in footy I, in footy i i, I know not my career I well, well actually there is some <laughs> things that i do want to talk about your career yeah. but i suppose looking at your story now is a real inspiration to me because mm. for someone and a lot of people that are in sport um and in the afl a lot of people think fuck this is the heart of my life you know mm. after this things are never going to be as good and yeah. you know i know that i fell in that trap when i was early days in my career and, and to see what you've been able to do post that and, and i suppose use some one of the learnings you've done in your career and i know you're an intelligent man and, and did a lot of study outside of that but to transfer into what you've done now in the states and as as a business owner it truly is um you know it's incredible not just for someone that plays sport but just career changes in general mm. um and that was the main reason i wanted to to get you on the show today to have a chat about how you did it but first i think it would be uh remiss of me not to touch on on the career that you did have <laughs> um across six years collingwood saints and hawthorne yeah Talk us through uh, getting to those clubs, what they were like. Um, you played 20 games across six years. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you, I feel like you would definitely know this. The average of that, 20 games over six years, what is that? Uh, five. Was five. It four. I no. average 5.3. So. Yeah. No, it's not. Five, five, six, thirty. So what is it? Um, 3.2? Okay. 3.2? Yeah. Well, it's not often I trump people in that, but that's, <laughs> that's good. Um, talk us through first uh, yeah. experiences getting to Collingwood. How did that all come about? What was you know your career like? Uh, was it high hopes? You know, I was drafted in 1999, and back then uh, I was drafted before Year 12 had finished. So I had my English exam on the Friday, and the draft was on the Sunday. It was televised on Channel 7. I remember watching it at my grandmother's house with my dad. Yep. Um, I was, I wasn't. I was a late chance. I was probably more likely to go in the rookie draft, but 
that year I'd had a good year and it was I only played one year under eighteens, but we won the premiership and I was the I played ten half back in the premiership team. And Is this we, with Sandringham or with Wesley? Yeah, with Sandringham. Yeah, and we were the most dominant team. We won that was one of the highlights of my footy career. We played on grand final day when they used to have the under eighteens, then the reserves, then the seniors. Yes. And um, that was phenomenal, like playing at the G on grand final day as the curtain, the first curtain raiser. Sorry, as well, who who played with you in that Sandringham team at that stage? We had we had we had eight players drafted. So um, David Spriggs, Jason Blake, Ezra Poyers, Mark Hanley, Nick Reese, Stephen Green, um, Jeremy Jukes, yeah, and myself were all drafted. No one went on to be an absolute superstar. Blakey played the most games. I think he played just under 200 games, mm. or around 200 for St Kilda. Spriggsy and uh, Ezra were top 10 or top 15 draft picks. Dylan Smith was also in the team, um, and he went early the following year. I think he went in top 10. Um, yeah, so, uh, but that year, I probably had two year 11 at school, and then in year 12. Uh, I was captain of Wesley. I captained the APS team and then uh, played at the Dragons. And yeah, I loved it. That year was phenomenal. It actually makes my heart sort of break when I hear about people missing out in the final year of sport at school. That was such a big part of year mm. 12. You know, that was so much enjoyment playing with the mates. And then to know that that's been just, you know, interrupted this year and last year just was was not not possible it's pretty traumatic i reckon if you're 16 17 and you've been looking or 18 looking forward to it so then got picked up at collingwood um it was at victoria park wow didn't have my driver's license yeah. and i hadn't so you can imagine this this is victoria park this is and boy from brighton mind yeah you boy from well. brighton <laughs> i'd never been i don't think to abbotsford or northcote and dad dropped me off there yeah, before you say i'm from fitzroy as well so. oh, there you go yeah, northern yeah, suburbs yeah, yeah, yeah probably you know didn't didn't fraternise with you guys too much. I was pretty insular down the bayside. But anyway, I've moved on. Now I want to be up there. That's yeah, the yeah, Trinity yeah. Plata. But um, I still can't believe that you asked me um, my average of my games over six years and I said five. It's <laughs> <laughs> not very really good for a former banker. Um, it shows you how reliant I'm on Excel. <laughs> Disintermediated my brain. But... Um, you know, so I'll never forget a few things. So I didn't have my car. I remember rocking up and I walked in and it was this side door and it was the old club rooms and I walk in and Mick Malthouse is there. It's his first year and he's this is his first draft for Collingwood. And he said to me, Oh, I just got rid of another I've just got rid of one Nick Stone and now I've got another one. That was the first thing he told me, because he just sacked the Nicholas Stone from West Coast yeah. a couple of months earlier. That was the first thing he said to me when I walked in. And then um, I I Eddie was there, I remember, and then you know Bucks was the captain, and uh, I hadn't turned hadn't turned eighteen yet, and I couldn't believe. And I, I wanted. They asked me. They said, "Oh, you come to training?" I said, "Yeah, I'll go to training," but I had two math methods exams. I had two Chinese exams. I had an um, economics exam. I had two geography. Collingwood just couldn't believe that I was studying Chinese. Like yeah, that. Yeah. that <laughs> I was like, you know. I don't think anyone in their entire organisation maybe even spoke Chinese yeah. but or, or you know understood what Mandarin was so that was a bit of a shock um, <laughs> but training there and uh, so first year I was never going to play um, I was too raw and and um, I'll never forget the first game was the Millennium, uh, Millennium game they played on New Year's Eve 
and Fev kicked 10. Oh, at, wow. Um, I think it was at Telstra Dome or Marvel Stadium. And the spray Mick gave the team, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I hope that never happens to me. It was You could hear it from 300 metres away. It was the biggest spray. It was his first game and obviously a big, big time coach. Yeah. And, you know, come from two premierships at the West Coast. And, yeah, so that year. So then the second year, um, I... I had a good preseason and I played pretty well in the preseason. I played um, a game in the seniors and um, I actually thought, um, they, and then the jumper presentation, they said you'd play. And I remember Barmy saying, Nick Stone's had a great preseason. He's going to play this year. And I ended up, um, I, I sort of had a rough start, but sort of came I played better in the second half, but what happened is I ended up fracturing my navicular. Oh, shit. And I kept playing with it because I was out of contract. And then I had two stress fractures also in that foot. So at the end of the season, Collingwood said, like, you're going in plaster for three months mm. and we're going to see if it heals or we'll have to operate. But that was a, it was actually sort of coinciding with the time when Hurd had fractured his navicular and then Matthew Allen from Carlton. And these guys were basically, like, their careers were finished. So I think Collingwood were... We're very concerned about that. And they were sort of implying like, you know, we can't re-sign you. Um, we'll try and move you to the rookie list. And that's when I got a call from Hawthorne. But, um, and then went to Hawthorne. Jade Rawlings called me up and with um, John Turnbull, the recruiting manager, and said like, you know, we, we could look after you and we could develop you and we'd seen you play in the preseason and we can rehab your foot. And I went to Hawthorne and uh, got picked up on the rookie list, their first pick, but then, or the second pick maybe. And then I was promoted to the senior list in preseason because they had a spot and then um, played eight games that year, including the game where I played, um, I was meant to be commentating in Chinese. This is an incredible story. We need to go into Because yeah. when you said the Mandarin before, I don't know if someone was taking the piss when they told me this, but this is unbelievable. You were gone there to help commentate the game in Mandarin so you're there not even as a player you're not even on the emergency list I was on the emergency list you're on the list. emergency list yeah but I wasn't I was just anticipating playing yeah. so I was meant to be up in this box and I wasn't going to commentate I was going to do like more like special comments just a couple in of, Mandarin yeah yeah just a couple <laughs> of words throwing there like Nick and he's, he's in reaching out to particularly the, the Chinese community out yeah. in the east which is a great initiative from Hawthorne and um, I was just going to add some some you know Hello, and my name is Nick. Yeah, yeah, nothing, nothing too extravagant. Quite, you know, you, orthodox. You can sort of see as well the the respect that Collingwood gave you when you could speak Mandarin versus what Hawthorne yeah. sort of gave you when you speak Mandarin. I think it was a different cultural yeah. sort of. Uh, Collingwood changed a lot very yeah. quickly. <laughs> I think when they left Victoria Park, but um, yeah. So I'm I'm meant to be commentating, and I get this phone call, or oh, it's either my phone rang or David Parkin came and said, "Hey, um, Jonathan Hay has done his back in the warm up." you're playing and literally ran down there and quickly like had to find my jumper and shorts it got my ankles and i no warm-up ran straight onto the ground started on ben graham who at that point was the captain of geelong and <laughs> was consistently up there with either winning a coleman or thereabouts yeah. and um he played on him and and kept him i think to one goal or two goals played well yeah. and for my and um that was my second game. My first game actually is a pretty funny story too, but um, we ended up winning and yeah, it was amazing. But um, my first game with Hawthorne, so I played round two and uh, it was up against the Lions 
and they were coming off their first flag. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so this team was absurd. Yeah. Like, you look back at it now. Boss, they were just Akamanis, Lappin, Hart, Black, everyone, everyone. Black, the Scots, Alistair Lynch, the forward line of Lynch, long hair, Brown, the shit out of me. Um, Bradshaw. Um, it was just... And then the back line was Mal Michael, Justin Lepich. You know, they had, no, it was just a late, absolutely elite. Yeah. So, um, so we go up there and uh, first game and I start on the ground on, on Bradshaw and, uh, you know, I'm sort of doing okay. I'm just, just running close. I'm not running off him at all. Yeah. There's no spread. I'm just like, man, I'm oh, man. Even when we got the ball, I think I'm still you know, arm across, <laughs> locked in. And then um, I ended up moving to Brownie and, you know, I think, he didn't sort of kick any goals on me and I was, I was doing okay. I, I think I played against him before in, in under 18. And then um, I remember in the last quarter, Lynch was just sort of really, and we, we were getting smashed and Lynch sort of really started to, to flex, to flex a little yeah. bit and, and um, bring out the deltoids. And anyway, <laughs> this ball came down. I couldn't believe it. Acker's got it on the wing and he's taken like three bounces and I'm playing on Lynch thinking there's just no way that he could kick this 55 metres on his left foot and, and put me out of position. Yeah. It was the, one of the best kicks I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Lynch has bench-pressed me in four hours under the ball, grabbed the ball and literally kicked it out of the stadium. And I was like, yeah, this is... Yeah. Welcome to the prime time yeah. now. And I was just looking at myself going, oh my God, like how do you, how do you compete with these guys? But... You know that was that was you know that was the first game ever and um, yeah and then and then played as I said eight games that year then the next year at Hawthorne played nine games and actually played seven games in a row played some good footy had a couple of games where I played you know pretty well mm. and um, you know unfortunately I got um, I got injured and um, missed the last few games and I think what was disappointing with Hawthorne is. When I was in that run of playing seven games in a row, they implied, okay, well, Nick will have a new contract and he'll be signed up for the next couple of years. And then I got hurt and then suddenly my contract all got stalled and it was sort of like, well, we're not sure, but we want him to sort of keep him in the club and might have to you know, redraft him as a rookie. I'm going, what's, what's going on here? Yeah. Like, oh, playing well. And, and sort of sure enough, they were working to basically get someone in to take my spot, which was Trent Crow. They were working to get Crody back from Fremantle, back from Hawthorne. And I, I went to Hawthorne when they, tro- they traded Crow. And, um, and Hawthorne had missed the finals both years I was there mm. when the year prior they had made that prelim and where Trent Crow hit the post against Essendon. And um, so there was, there was a lot of frustration that Hawthorne hadn't gone on because they thought they had a good list. And... So um, I put my, uh, so I ended up training there, going back in the draft, and um, I got picked up by St Kilda, and um, <laughs> so I hadn't even weird. spoken to. Yeah. And St Kilda's very close to where I was living. I spent the whole time living at home. One thing is amazing. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I'm back in Brighton at my parents' Never law been place. To <laughs> And I'm cleaning out the attic. I had all my, my... I was pretty meticulous in like filing things away. I got it from my mum. So like, you know, all my bank statements and all this like useless stuff. But I was just... I put it in folders and it was just very organised. And I saved all my footy contracts. 
So I just went through them and uh, my soon-to-be brother-in-law is a, a former Brisbane Lion and Collingwood player, Jackson Payne, who's engaged. Oh, no, to- well, he was my age. Yeah. We played together, Philadelphia oh, okay. Metro and everything. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So Payne is engaged to... Can I tell you something very yeah. funny on yeah. Jackson Payne? Yeah. This is really weird. But last night, this is how fucked the universe is, I was sending a message to my mate saying, hey Siri, send a message to Jake McBean saying, fuck you, you dog. And like, <laughs> sorry for anyone there. And it's then Siri goes, hey Siri, are you sure you want to send fuck you, you dog to Jackson Payne? Wow. Last night. I didn't send it to him because I haven't spoken to him in like four years, but he's one of the best blokes of all time. Sorry to interrupt. There you go. Very Siri weird, must story. have known who yeah. was coming up <laughs> the next day. So did Jackson the Payne, if that did go through, I apologise. That was yeah. not meant to go through. He, he can handle it. Yeah. He's, a, he, he's a big boy. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a, a very funny cat too. Big boy. Um, he used to get a lot of ingrown hairs on his legs. Yeah, no, he still gets a few of those. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but nah, he's, he's what a legend. Yeah, he's he, the funniest he, guy ever. He's won, I think he won the gold jacket, like three footy trips, which is the Brisbane Lions footy trip yeah. best on trip. Yeah. I think he won it three yeah. times. Unbelievable. I think mm. he was only there for three seasons. No, he or yeah. Yeah. So he knows how to go hard. No, he's yeah. a good boy. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> that's, that's JV. I'm talking about my footy contracts. Yes, so what, what I couldn't believe, I was like, look how much I earned when I got drafted it is criminal it's actually like I cannot believe the AFL got away with this rookie contract can I guess so when I got drafted third round pick 1999 my base salary was $24,000 including super now imagine if I didn't live at home (laughs) imagine if you're an interstate kid that comes a third round draft pick and then my next year was 30 grand and then at Hawthorne my starting rookie contract was $18,000 Right. Then I got upgraded. Then I got upgraded to the senior list and it doubled to thirty six. And I got two thousand dollars bonus because I played in the Wizard Cup, which Hawthorne <laughs> which which then Hawthorne took back from me when I got elevated to the senior list. I completely forgot all this. I'm, I see this letter. We are rescinding that two thousand dollars we gave you for playing in the Wizard Cup because you now got elevated to the senior list oh on thirty six thousand dollars. It is criminal. And then the, and then I ended up, because I'd had those two, and then, you know, the two years at Hawthorne, then I went to St Kilda, I got picked up as a rookie. Yeah, my rookie base, I think, was $25,000. And this is in t- 2004. And I got put on the senior list and played a couple of games. Then the next year, I, was, I started um, on the senior list. It's pretty, it's pretty extraordinary when you mm. think about it. And I, I could only imagine that was, the, that was the era I think the AFL was professionalizing itself. It was becoming very fixed on the, um, on the dopamine of TV rights yeah. and privatizing what I think is a public asset, which is the AFL. And we, that's another thing yeah, that I can yeah. really tear into. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I remember back then that some of the, the administrators were, were starting to earn upwards of a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for players putting, are getting paid 20 grand. And players yeah. are getting paid 20 grand. And the AFL administration's going around saying, oh, you have to pay us this amount because we are defending our game and our growth from the emergence of soccer and the emergence of all these... No. I'm like, honestly, this is the same scare tactic that I think the Americans used to invade you know, Iraq. Yeah. It was like this fear-mongering. I'm like, this is just... This is a game that is indigenous. It stood the test of time. It's not going anywhere. It has the best participation rate. And more importantly, it has such an incredible female engagement. And that's what separates the AFL from any other f- football code globally is the amount of females that, that attend games and are interested in the game. And no other sporting code has that. And that's why the AFL is of, of significant interest 
interest to the NFL another a number of these other football codes and that's the biggest difference between the afl and any either rugby league or rugby union is the female um, supporter base mm. and participation which is extraordinary it's a credit to the game but but yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty when you look back at it it is kind of scary that these kids were moving across the state and going to be paid less than twenty thousand dollars have to fend for themselves they maybe got a little allowance but you know, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity cost being an AFL player. It, but even, you know, to an extent now, I know there's players that are on millions of dollars, which yeah. realistically, when you think about it, the Dustin Martins, Lance Franklins of the world, yeah. they're only earning a million dollars when the yeah. game generates, you know, hundreds of millions of yeah. dollars. They should be on so much more yeah. that they're on. Yeah. And the thing that annoyed me the most was this, you know, when I was playing footy, I was on rookie deals and, and um, nearly paying registration, to be honest, to be there. But it would always say the average income is 300 grand. I never saw three hundred grand. Like not once. Like that's that's that stat is of people that actually play the game. So you're saying that the you know all the people that aren't playing actually aren't even into that average. So that's going to bring it down nearly Harvard at least. Yeah, it's so stupid. Look, you can articulate a lot better than me, but there's no way the players now you know and living in the states especially mm. where it's you realise it's actually the players' game that are making us. They deserve to be making a lot more money than they are. Yeah, there's a lot of inequity. And I would say even with the top players, I don't know if they're earning more than what Gil McLaughlin would earn. They probably, they're probably not. And I think that that's... Yeah, I know Gil's position is very important and he's a chief executive of a, of a large business, mm. but it doesn't have any competitive threats. It really doesn't. It doesn't compete. It's not a public listed company. No. It's a public asset. It's, it's, it's a public asset. It's owned. It should be owned by the people for the people. It's part of being Australian. And I think that we've got a really delicate balance between looking at it as something that's private and meant to generate a shareholder return versus something that is a public good. And I think there needs to be a redistribution um, back to the players, especially when you look at the repercussions from having an AFL career mm. and the sacrifices made, not just at the time, and there's tremendous opportunity costs, but in the future. And because of their courage and commitment, that the game is a spectacle and entertaining. But I've got lots of friends who are dealing with serious issues post-career. Not just bad knees and backs, but you know, issues with their head, issues with psychology. And um, it's a very, very tough thing for most players to move from effectively chasing their childhood dream Realizing it somewhat, yeah, and then trying to transition at such a young age. Where in the states, you look at when they go pro, they're going pro at 21, 22, 23. My career was finished at twenty three, and I had six seasons. Mm. It's just a very different, yeah. It's it's so funny because well, it's not funny, but yesterday I was doing a talk with um, Cricket Victoria, and I was chatting to these these young blokes just about like my transition out of the game and and what I'd sort of picked up along the way. And someone said to me, they were like, do you think that if you knew what you knew now, like you would have had a better career and then played longer footy? And I was like, fuck, I honestly don't wish I had played longer because I think the longer I'm in the game, the more it's actually going to set me back yeah. off field. I look back now and it's interesting to get your thoughts on this, but like because I left the game earlier, I wasn't as attached to this AFL career and I was still young enough to forge another career after it. Mm. Whereas a lot of these guys that leave, if they're not investing in themselves off field and you leave the game at 33 and there's not many coaching positions anymore, it's fucking so hard to actually find another career path and purpose post-footy. Yeah, 
I wholeheartedly agree. I look at the timing as very serendipitous for me. So I got delisted in 2005. I got delisted. So I found out that I was delisted from St Kilda in the paper. Yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> this is I, Break this down because so, this is unbelievable. So I finished my final exam at Monash Uni. I see a missed call from Grant Thomas. Right? <laughs> I'm like, I just finished my degree. Six years part time. What's a degree? Sorry, by the way. Um, I did uh, business banking and finance. That's yeah. Cool. So I, I went from means. doing commerce to banking and finance. So I didn't have to go to Clayton. So I could yeah. go to Caulfield. So yeah. it worked out really, really well because yeah. I was still living at home. Yeah. And um, I remember, I'm like, I'm not answering this. I just finished my. So literally, that was Friday. List lodgement was due at like 4 p.m. And he called me, I think, at 2 p.m. <laughs> and then literally in the paper the next day. Um, because I'm on the way to Derby Day and Stephen Powell text, texts me saying, oh, mate, I can't believe it. I'm so disappointed for you. And and I was like, you know, just... And then and then literally um, I uh, connected with Grant and, and went round to his house two days later and um, in his lovely place in Moore Avenue in Brighton on the Golden Mile. And he, and he told me, uh, yeah, I'm not going to continue. But uh, this is a funny story. Um I, 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 there's just so many over the years, but so so you get delisted, right? I'm 23. I didn't enjoy my time playing AFL whatsoever. I never, I never believed in myself. So I would go to the VFL and dominate. Mm. You know, I, had, uh, in especially my two years at St Kilda, um, I, yeah, you know, I, I sort of was just playing so well, and I was emergency every game, every final St Kilda played in in 04 and 05, and we made two prelims. I was emergency. I was actually meant to play in 05 against Sydney. I was picked. I was told by Grant, and then um, after the final training session, he made a decision that I was out, and he and Brennan Goddard was was going to be emergency, and and BJ went in. Now listen, I can't ever compare to Brennan Goddard, but yep. but that year at St Kilda. Ultimately, the spot in that back line was between Sam Fisher and myself. And um, they picked Sam Fisher over me and he got the first five games. And I remember driving Grant home and he's saying, like, I know it's your turn now because Chip's got the first shot and he was guaranteed a certain amount of games. And if he played well, he'd say, and if he didn't, and he hasn't played well. And I said, all right, well, we're going to give him one more game. And sure enough, one more game, he has like 20 and, and becomes an elite player. And yeah. I'm not saying I could ever get to that level, but... Um, those two years, I, I so I'd go to the VFL and I'd play my natural game. I wouldn't worry about anything and play really well. But as soon as I'd go into the AFL or even at training, I would dread. I look back at it now and I'm just uh, I just can't believe the mental position I was in. I used to watch the clock from when I had to get up to go to training and watch the seconds and go. I got another more minute to wait in bed. I got another more minute and. You know, I just just go to training and almost hope sometimes the board can come to me. And I just cannot, I literally cannot believe I was like that. But and now at 39 and, and the people I've met and what I've achieved, like I just, it could have been so much better. And if, for me, it was probably the best ever thing that happened that I was delisted. Because as I said, it's serendipitous timing because I got into banking, got an internship, finished my degree. And it was just before the financial crisis hit. So if I'd got in, in started in 20, 2008, 2007, the GFC, no one was hiring. Everyone was worried about, mm. you know, what's going to happen at asset price and what have you. I got in just before then and, and was afforded an opportunity and got a graduate position at ANZ in corporate finance. And my career was sort of 
off to the races from then. But one of the things I really like about this program is that people are talking honestly and mm. uh, about what is perceived externally as the best thing ever. Yeah. And yes, playing AFL was my childhood dream. I and, used to... And you, and I'm sure you're grateful for the opportunity as well because that's yeah. one thing that people get really upset with. They go, oh, I'd die to do that. <clears> That'd be, it's like, not saying that we're not grateful, but saying just it does come with challenges. Yeah, I, I'm extremely grateful. It mm. was achieving my childhood dream, but it's complicated and Mate, it's hard. When you said and before about the, the, like, hoping the ball, like, didn't come to you, like, it, it's incredible how common that must be. Like, I look back to my last two years of footy and I was on the bus sometimes, like, going to a game, just thinking, fuck me, I hope this bus just breaks down. Mm. So I just do not have to do this. Yep. I, I, it's obviously a severe anxiety, performance anxiety, whatever it is, I'm not sure. It's a psyche, you know, I'm still trying to work through it now. But since I finished, like, all that stress just doesn't even come to me. With a podcast, you'd think it'd be the same, but it's it's not. I don't know. Like, there's just something around the belief and the anxiety of, of performance that I still haven't been able to really put my finger on why that actually came. But it is so common. Like, a lot of players really do not enjoy actually playing football but i love mm. the lifestyle of being a footballer yeah and the camaraderie yeah and being so fit and conditioned is fantastic and then certainly i think you get the superficial things mm. to an extent that drink oh cards. someone recognizes you yeah the old star bar sunday yeah. night drink <laughs> you used to get that at collingwood you I, know? yeah cq um, i got it once but then they, C- they wouldn't actually believe that i was a player yeah <laughs> I used to remember actually I reckon the first couple of years I used to take my AFL Players Association card in my wallet just in case you have to show case, them you, know, you have like, to show I'm there's legit. proof yeah. really like yeah I haven't played any games but I'm, I'm on the list <laughs> I remember going out there when I was on my crutches with my foot you know still going yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know oh. I think I think that um Hello, my beautiful friends and family. Guess what? I am back. I am back. Third time lucky. My third time drafted in my life. I'll be making a return to footy as a part of the Carlton Draft, along with some big household names. Not as big as my name, but uh, some quite big names. Isaac Smith, Trent Cotchin, Matty Lloyd, Lee Montagna. Some of the all-time greats of our game, as I've just mentioned. One lucky Victorian women's community club will get the chance to draft the AFLW GOAT Aaron Phillips to play as a wildcard. How bloody good is that? If you're a part of women's community footy and you are keen to get Aaron down, enter now at thecarltondraft.com.au. That's thecarltondraft.com.au. 18 plus, drink responsibly. I'm just, you know, I, I do believe that that if you do have a fantastic sporting career, that it, it just should be viewed as a chapter in your life yeah. because it would be so incredibly sad and almost insular if your whole life was based on this sporting experience that was more likely going to finish in your 20s yeah so what do you do for utility forget about the economic reasons why you need to study because you need to provide a roof over your head and fund you know feed your family and develop or whatever and travel or whatever but just the utility that you get from working and the purpose from actually improving and mastering a skill and socializing with people so i had a pretty pragmatic view on it and i'm very grateful for the home and the family construct i had to continue to reinforce that and even though my parents were disappointed that um i didn't fulfill all my goals in in the afl system my mum, i think was really relieved that the afl had finished mm. i think my dad was really frustrated because he could see that you know i was in the season i was in the system for six years so clearly and three clubs 
enough people thought I had the talent yeah. and the work ethic and the athleticism to sort of make it. Or otherwise, I would have just been cut after two years. But, um, you know, I do believe there's a lot of players that come in or a lot of sports people that come into the system and come straight out because they can't come to, to grips with letting go and playing with freedom and I look at it now I'm very grateful that it wrapped up because I was able to transition in my next career but looking at it now there's just no way I would have approached my AFL career no, no. like I did I would have just gone with reckless abandonment yeah. it wouldn't have mattered I would have gone out there and said you know if I just if I get 10 kicked on me today it doesn't matter because in 10 years time I'm going to be living in Manhattan yeah. and I'm going to be out and about and living my you know my best life and I think that's something that this podcast is doing a really good job to talk about the actual truth of the matter, that it's not all glamorous. It's not all, yeah, that day I went out there and played in front of 100,000 people. Well, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people, mm. they, they're, they're just trying to get one game. They're trying to get on a list. And then when they get there, they're paralyzed from fear. And I actually had a few times where I'd get the ball and I'd almost forget how to kick. <laughs> yeah. And how many times you kicked? Like 10 million over your, your life? And I'd get it and I'm like, what do I do with the ball? Like, it's just crazy, the mentality. And I guess that's the difference from the best and amateurs like me. But um, I do think that um, the AFL and clubs should invest more in understanding those blockages because a lot of players you look at, and I think the the superficial assessment would be, oh, his skill's not good enough or he doesn't read the play well enough or he's not fast enough, good enough. A lot of the time it could be, hey, um, are you in... Dill, are you enjoying playing? Mm. And if you're not, um, talk to me like how you feel when the ball comes to you. Talk to me about how you feel when you wake up in the morning for, for the game. Well, I feel terrible. Well, why don't we work on addressing some of those triggers? Why don't we address on like, why don't we do something like, we're going to guarantee to play you three games in a row. We're not going to drop you. Mm. So it doesn't matter. You, play for, you don't play well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to keep you in the team. I think that's where the next generation of coaches are excelling. And that's why I think Clarkson... And Richmond, I think, at the moment. Yeah. Too. With Emma Murray, I'm not sure if you've seen you know, a lot of her stuff. We spoke about this exactly. It's like A game versus B game, sorry. And it's like, when are you in your A game versus when are you in your B game? And it's more about, look, you're, you're always going to be in both, but it's about being in your A game more and identifying what that looks like. And if, if that's, you know, releasing your fear and just focusing on your job that's next at hand, not getting too far ahead, yeah. all these types of things, which has categorically changed the way that a lot of those players play and they play with freedom. And mm-hmm. it's so easy to say that in theory, but it, it really does come to a whole club embracing it. Because if you've got one person saying it, but the senior coach doesn't give a shit about it, then it's irrelevant. Yeah, fish rots from the head. And, and you, have to, you have to do it and practice it through the good and the bad. And I see that old habits creep in yeah. and they die very hard when you're losing or when there's frustrations. But you need to be, you need continuity and you need to have commitment and it needs to be tangibly felt and embraced. It's, mm. not, it's not something you just can preach. You've got to do and orientate the whole club. And I think that the best teams are doing that. But, and, and I think there's also got to be an acknowledgement that the subjects, your team, your, your, the players, they're still in such an early stage of their life cycle. They're, they're learning, they're experiencing, yeah. their brains are still malleable. To determine whether a player can make it or not at 19, 18, 20, 21, you know, they're in the first quarter of their entire life. I think the best approach is life is long and even if you achieve your dream early on, 
don't stop there mm. that you can achieve more than you ever inspected and i think about my life like my life has only got better and i had an unbelievable sort of 10 years living in the states uh with my partner with my wife at that stage partner and unencumbered her doing her career they chasing um first in banking and then my own sort of entrepreneurial pursuit it was just wonderful and i don't even think about afl i'll never i never think about afl i never think about playing or what it was like it's only when i come back here and people talk so much about footy yeah, but over yeah, there like you know no one cares no one cares and like and it's flattening I, so i won't be getting drink cards at uh no 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 mate but maybe because of the podcast yeah, though yeah, you know? yeah maybe talk about that so you finish up playing footy you spend a bit of time with the collegians got to give them a shout out because yeah. holsey uh greeny and viv mitchy jake trotter all the boys they're absolutely massive fan of you then you head over to new york you start your career with anz yes in banking mm-hmm. and venture capitalists is, is it a similar type of concept i had yeah. to born last week and he explained what it was went straight over my head and i just sort of <laughs> nodded was like yeah yeah of course what what is that but really layman's terms yeah. day-to-day role of what that was okay so i went to uh, the states in september 2010 to study at business school actually i was doing an mba here and at melbourne university and that coincided with me being transferred with ANZ to, the new, to their New York office to work in corporate finance, which effectively is um, how to fund large companies to, to grow, to uh, expand their operations, to look at um, issuing more capital to fund their business or acquire other businesses or invest. And I got a wonderful opportunity to effectively rebuild that business because it had been shut down because of the the financial crisis the the Mm -hmm. gfc which happened in yeah around that time period 2011 2010 and um it was a wonderful opportunity i worked between new york and london so i did two weeks in new york two weeks in london for about 14 months establishing this corporate finance function and uh and then you know I i was lucky i got promoted very quickly to director i was from put on the executive team and afforded extraordinary opportunities to work with the biggest multinationals in the world. You know, um, next minute I was out in Cupertino pitching the Apple treasurer or I met the Apple CFO or working on huge, huge transactions. So it was extraordinary opportunity. And what was it like seeing some of that wealth, like in, in people Like what like <laughs> flex on us? Like yeah. what are some of the coolest like setups you've seen? Like when you go to a meeting yeah. and you just go like, this is, this is fucked. Flying back on Steve's jets it was pretty. Steve Jobs. No, no, no. This is Steve, um, Steve Ross. Oh, this Steve, is Ross. Steve Ross. Sorry, yeah, but... I didn't meet Steve Jobs. No, he wasn't around. <laughs> 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 but oh, like you know, in in the corporate finance world, yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's you know you're never spending that much time at people's houses, yeah. but yeah, certainly like the campuses are everything you thought of. Like the you know the big Apple and Google tech campuses are just extraordinary, yeah. and they're not like going out to the you know, the Mulgrave office of Adidas or something. It's a, it's a My little mate bit... works out there. It's going to be flat. Yeah, yeah. it's all right. <laughs> it's all right. Oh, it's great. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not cool. it's not like the biggest, you know, the company's worth over a trillion dollars. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That, uh, so, yeah, it's... Uh, but I've... Listen, I've, I've been so fortunate. And the best thing about AFL is like... Because, you know, you walk in... Meet your childhood hero. I remember meeting Nathan Buckley and going, oh my God, it's Nathan Buckley. Yeah. And then the next minute, you know, he's like, you know, pushing you to run against him or do weights yeah. with him. I remember, and, you know, 
just kicking the ball to you and telling you to market. You know, that's exactly right. But and then when you moved into banking, I took all that disappointment from AFL. I'm like, I'm not going to let this inhibit me whatsoever. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to treat everybody, no matter their status, their yeah. their success, their position, the same. I'm going to treat the bottom to the top the same, and be very respectful and polite and inquisitive, but be humble, but not be intimidated. And that has that has supported my career so dramatically in both banking in Australia and overseas and also now with Bluestone. But this was a pretty good story. So if you're the CEO of a company in which um, it's linked to RSC Ventures and you're a portfolio company. So basically RSC Ventures is Steve Ross and Matt Higgins, a private family office. They invest in sports, they invest in media, they invest in hospitality, they invest in tech. And Steve uh, owns the Miami Dolphins and he owns the Hard Rock Stadium. So um, you, you're invited, if you're a CEO of one of the portfolio companies, to one game and you sort of get the whole experience. So I, um, I'll never forget, you know, arriving and uh, this is the second time I did it, arriving and I took um, our CFO who was a good friend of mine from banking and he's, he's done an amazing job at Bluestone and we got escorted straight onto the field. And then you just stand on the field for the whole warm-up, the anthem, the jets going over, everything, all the players next to you. And, and then you go straight in the owner's box. And that's the one thing the Americans love. Like they really do plush boxes. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. not like your top of the Southern stand, no, yeah, yeah, party yeah, pies yeah. And, a, <laughs> and a draft, you know, on tap. This is, this is the real deal, right? <laughs> any cuisine, the finest wine, yeah. um, all the entertainment. So I remember going in there and got the private lift up in and Steve's there and all the other GM and the, the owners and, and then there's Derek Jeter. Do you know who Derek Jeter I, is? I know the name, yeah. Is he the baseball Yeah, baseball Yeah, yeah. I've actually yeah. got, when I went to New York, I actually bought his top. I don't yeah, know the best, yeah. 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 <laughs> I just That's got it because it was everywhere. I was yeah. like, that guy looks cool. Well, the good news yeah. is you're, there's, you're not alone there. Most okay. Australians go there and they buy a New York Yankees yeah. hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Jeter, man. Jeter. So yeah. I met Jeter, Derek Jeter. He's, he's like the best shortstop of all time um and uh he i actually saw him score his i think it was three thousand hit for the new york yankees i think he's second all time and i was in the stands when he i was in the yeah in the bleachers when he hit his home run it was just absolute fluke he got a hit and then he in the six innings he hit a home run and yeah it was incredible but met him met dan marino which you might remember from ace ventura pet detective (laughs) (laughs) and he's like the legend of the dolphins and um you know a few other like you know um mark anthony one of j-lo's former exes he's a he's a big deal down miami he was in there and anyway so the game the game finishes and i'm with david and matt's like oh we're gonna fly home with steve because to get time often with steve um I've, I've, this has frequently happened but the way you can catch up with him is like you got to sit with him on the jet so I'm praying that the Dolphins win so he's in a good mood and I can talk to him about Bluestone and get him excited otherwise it's going to be challenging so I speak to Matt Higgins who is the CEO of the of RSC Ventures so um, and he's the vice chairman of the Dolphins and he's the one that came to me about investing in Bluestone he's on Shark Tank in America as a guest and he's done some extraordinary things so um I go to Matt, um, you know, when we get in the jet, can, can David come with me? You know, is, is, it, is there a spare seat? And he's just going, no, no, just like the CEO only. So I went to cook and went, sorry, mate, you're going to you have to fly commercial <laughs> back. So um, sure enough, like the setup is that elite. There's a private lift. The lift goes down from the box 
and then there's um, it and there's a door that opens and you walk straight out of the stadium and there's a convoy of cars and there's a police escort. They block out all of the roads exiting a stadium. Like the stadium's, you know, a bit smaller version of the MCG. Maybe, maybe it's like 60,000, So everything's blocked. Cars, the motorcade goes out straight through, drives through about five minutes, straight onto the tarmac. The jet's there, walk off the tarmac, straight on the jet. The jet takes off within two minutes and then you're back in New York like two and a half hours later or something. And um, one story I haven't told too many people, I haven't even told this to Matt, is <laughs> I get to the I get to Teterboro Airport where we land and uh, there's all the cars and and Steve goes to me, um, you know, where, where are you going, Nick? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm staying in Manhattan. He goes, well, whereabouts? And uh, Alexander and I, we, we own a small apartment in West Village, but we had a tenant in there and rented it out. So I was actually staying in a place called um, Yotel, which is like <laughs> one step off a hostel. <laughs> Um, it's not too bad. Yeah. I actually think it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's just got the raw, raw basics, yeah. but it's very... Fit. And I'm pretty... Like, I like to... Considering how hard it is to make a dollar in a business, yeah. I'm very conservative with the company's capital. Yeah. And I was like, you know, staying at Yotel. And the, it's like an automatic check-in. You get a ticket. You walk up to a room. You punch the code. The door's open. It, it's it's a bit wild. Um, that it's, Can uh, you it's leave efficient. your stuff in there? Yeah, 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 it's so a hotel room, okay, but, but you've there's got like that. there's no human interaction, yeah. and you know there's there's nothing luxurious, okay. but it's sufficient. You know, it's it's uh, it's one step up the Holiday Inn. It's like a millennial Holiday Very, Inn. Really yeah. Dylan friends vibe. So anyway, so um, you can imagine Steve Ross, who's a multi-billionaire, we just came off his jet, and he's like, "Oh, so where are you, where are you going?" And I was too afraid to tell him I'm staying at the hotel. I was, I should have told him. You would have loved it even yeah. more as an investor. Yeah. But I said, "Oh, I'm staying at Westfield." He goes, "All right, you, you come with me." So I go in with him and his wife and um, jump out and uh, get out of the tunnel, Lincoln Tunnel. And he's like, "Oh, you know." Where, where are you going? You're going to West Village, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Steve, I'll just jump out here. Jump out here. And he's like, you serious? I go, yeah. I jump out the side of the road. And as soon as the car drives up, like, Yotel was one block up. So, <laughs> so I walked up there, hit myself and went in. But um, yeah, that was, a, you know, that sort of, I guess, sums me up a little bit that I went from the ultimate experience on the ground with the Anthem and the private escort and and uh, police escort and then the private jet, but then stayed at the Yotel. So it's <laughs> <laughs> so, the life of an entrepreneur, mate. Yeah. It's, um, so with Steve, Steve, obviously now i know who he is yeah. massive like did you guys end up doing business together since i'm fast forwarding here i suppose yeah, yeah they're, they're to... our largest investor yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. They, they've supported the company through through a number of years and wow. it's it's um you know they, they've got a lot of investments um they are big investors in um well equinox is owned by related and related is the company steve is the founder of chair of they did the largest private real estate development in New York City's history. Fifty billion dollar investment called development called Hudson Yards. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but um, related owned luxury hotels and office buildings. Columbus Circle is related oh, yeah. and developed that. But anyway, um, yeah, you know they've been fantastic, and you know they've been very supportive, and they, and they took a you know they they took a big. You know, leap of faith in backing um, a hospitality concept with a someone who'd never worked a day in hospitality, mm. first time founder, someone from Australia, and um, but at the when they first invested, which was in June, we closed in twenty eighteen, June twenty eighteen. But we were running a process in late twenty seventeen, and it was fortunate that I'd been in banking, so all the capital we've raised, we've raised 
about 50 million us i've raised that all myself and i was very lucky that i had that skill set and knew how to prepare materials and knew how to do the financial modeling and negotiate and and that's worked out well for us and been a bit of a advantage certainly having that business acumen but uh i remember there was a few groups in rsc were late to the party and had this meeting i didn't know who matt higgins was i didn't really know much about rsc i'd never you know, didn't know much about steve but uh, had this meeting and, uh, you know, like a day later, they texted me saying, uh, you know, just we'll, we'll come to the game. We'll fly you down to the game. You'll be... And literally, so I couldn't, I missed Steve's jet. He went earlier. So I flew commercial, got picked up and um, car took me, same thing, got out. Person gave me the passes, said walk through the tunnel, walk through the tunnel straight onto the ground. And it was Monday night football, the Dolphins versus the Patriots. And on the ground by myself and Tom Brady, who I absolutely love, is standing right there. I'm just watching him warm up, throw. I was like, what the... Who would have thought a guy from Brighton, (laughs) (laughs) who'd never worked a day in a pub, never worked a day in a cafe, um, that had, you know, six years in the AFL playing an illustrious 20 games (laughs) and um, had worked in finance since, is standing on the ground at the stadium that's owned by the potential investor in your company and Tom Brady's there. It was just one of those moments that I, um, yeah, there's been a few like that where, again, I think it's so serendipitous that AFL um, wrapped up for me and I was able to transition. But it's been, you know, like it's because you got to continue to work at it. Like I went to university for 10 years. Mm. I did three degrees. I I started... um, when I went into banking, you know, I started with an internship at UBS and then got a graduate position and started as a graduate and worked my way up. So, you know, you, you just got to continue to improve and focus. And you, yeah, you, if you feel like you can't get to a certain spot, just, just like anything, you got to find a pathway and it might be through study, it might be through conditioning yourself, might be through networking, it through, through, could be through just exploring new avenues. But it's the best thing about life, opportunity. Well, that's what I... Look, I'm not even going to pretend I know anything about business. I, I run a, a, a podcast. But one thing I have learned, and I chat to a few people that I really look at, like a, a Nick Crocker, who I'm not sure if you know from Blackbird yep. Ventures, and, and yourself and what you said there about Steve and, and your ventures, and it's like you don't invest in businesses, you invest in people. Mm-hmm. And I suppose like, you know, without saying that, Steve has seen something in you, which we've all seen today and heard on the podcast, that it's someone that has the grit, has the determination, has skill set that you've learned. But honestly, in that as well, you also have the passion and the knowledge to find the questions that you don't know. So that's probably something that I've learned like recently and and hearing you say it again, I'm like, fuck, that's what it is. It's like, it's not investing in in the business idea, it's investing in the person behind it and and their skill set in being able to to go through, I suppose. And and to bring it home and to do everything that it takes to give it the best shot to mm. be successful. Mm. And so much of it's linked to EQ. You know, like we, there's this over, there's, a, uh, there's too much focus. There's a bit myopic on IQ, but the world has changed so much with technology and digital and AI machine learning that humans are going to be disintermediated mm. for their pure brain capacity. Machines are going to do it far more efficiently and cheaply. It's EQ where humans' structural advantage is going to be. And when you think about developing a company, like so much of it is about getting the right team, the right team dynamic, getting the right culture. Bluestone Lane doesn't have really any intellectual property. Hospitality doesn't full stop. Anyone that tells you that they do, I think is is probably smoking the good stuff. Yeah. Anyone can make a great coffee. Anyone can do an avocado smash. Anyone can, uh, can make a great steak. But... 
the EQ elements are so essential how the team and the culture and the atmosphere and the service orientation and that's very much like any team whether it's in finance or in sport it's getting the right people to buy into and then that have the right values and then to do it in harmony and to their best of their ability and that's what I've you know focused on at Bluestone and we've built this brand mm. and the brand is a representation of our culture and our service orientation and all, honestly that we have our mission is it's not just coffee it's connection mm. and perfect coffee and automated coffee that's easy that's going to continue to improve but the thing you can't disintermediate is the way that you can make someone feel that recognition piece that they're part of our community that they're a local not a customer and when i look at a lot of i get approached a lot to invest in small companies and mentor small companies and i'm on a couple of boards and my approach uh, is always about yes i can understand like the product market fit i can understand the unit economics but can you develop a team and can you develop a relationship with your core customer that can transcend and last is it sustainable mm. and um, that is the biggest difference i think between uh, the majority of startups is can they can they engender that that team that culture and then Community. attract capital to to mm. give it the best shot yeah who won like this is probably a very long form question but in in your goals now and i suppose in what you're looking at for those brands that stick out who are some of your favorite businesses that you go like that as a brand that as a community that you look up to might not even be in your realm but you were yeah. like fuck that's evident that that is successful there's a number i think lululemon's really fascinating lululemon hasn't gone very wide with its product so its skews and its core customer is pretty focused it trades on such a premium multiple to nike to under armor to adidas it's nowhere near as big but it trades at a, a higher multiple because it's valued um, at, a, at a higher relative level. Mm. I think Lula are extraordinary. So they focus so much on building community and the store manager has such an active role and they were so empowered to go out and develop these and, and reach out with the, the yoga groups and the Pilates and the running groups. I think they've done an extraordinary job when you think about what they actually do. They don't have a ton of differentiation in their product. Yes, some would say that their tights are slightly better, but it's not... It's not it's it's not it's a the point vibe, of yeah. Yeah, product yeah. differentiation like an iPhone versus eighty one ten Nokia, right? Um, it, it is it's pretty it's pretty similar. I think when I think about entrepreneurs that are really inspiring, I think Branson's unbelievable, Richard Branson, mm. and the way he continues to um, innovate and invigorate, and the amount of businesses invested in, and just that focus on brand is extraordinary. The start of Bluestone, obviously dominating the field of investment banking. When did that come? Like, when did you think, oh, fuck, there's a, a, a gap in the market here in the US of to yeah. start the Australian culture of coffee to bring here? Because I know, you know, I was there, I've been to uh, one of your cafes in, in New York and I was like, fuck, there is just genuinely nothing like this here. And it is so weird going to like a cafe, asking for a coffee and getting like a water bottle full of like coffee. And I was like, what the Dish fuck water. is this? Like, how am I meant to drink it? It's like four liters of like liquid. Yeah, well, I think it was very uh, intuitive, honestly. And I was solving a need that I had. I was, I was creating this brand out of self-necessity. So when I moved to the States uh, and as part of my studies, I was doing a effectively an executive program in corporate finance and venture capital. I was pretty accomplished in corporate finance, had good understanding. So I was able to 
transition and do more venture capital and more specialized study. And during one of my classes was on working on a business idea and I was mucking around and I'd always had like different ideas and my wife also, she's had um, a, a, a lot of different side hustles and, and ideas. And I basically kept coming back to doing coffee because I was so extraordinarily surprised at Starbucks. So this would be a good one. What do you think Starbucks market capitalization is? I did listen to Ted Rich's podcast. So right now it's probably about, well, I haven't checked it today. It's probably like 120, 120 130 30 billion, billion US. Yeah. Right? So anyway, I couldn't believe this company so big. And especially because I had such a mild view on Starbucks, right? You know, Starbucks failed in Australia and it's terrible. And we've got, we've got great coffee. And how do people drink this? Similar to your immediate, you know, mm. your opening monologue. But I started studying then, okay, how fast did they do it? And how much of the market capacity have? And, the second biggest player behind Starbucks was Duncan, and Duncan was worth at that stage six billion. So it had this moat of at this stage, you know, seventy-four billion, circa seventy billion. I just couldn't believe it. You very rarely see two companies that sell the same type of product in the same cities in the same market with such a such what we call an economic moat, like a structural moat, and. I just started to dive in the story of Starbucks and I was very intrigued and I had such a, yeah, a narrow view and I just realized what they've done is absolutely extraordinary. They commercialized espresso coffee. Before Starbucks, no one drank espresso really mm. at scale. Pockets of, you know, Italian migrants and Europeans that, that probably drank it, but that wasn't mainstream America and that's what they achieved. But then as I was observing that there was this new generation that were very much into artisanal products. They were into craft beer they were into natural skincare they were finding tremendous amount of community through class fitness it was the soul cycle rage it was the it was uh, the the reimagination of yoga it was they were finding these businesses where they had real local connection um, and i use the example of a manny and petty do you know what a manny and petty is oh, I yeah do, yes. there you do so I do where we lived in west village there was manny and petty places everywhere it's like 25 but people are so and you think about then it's pretty commoditized and you know um ubiquitous but everyone would have their own professional you know what's it called like beautician Mm. so it's like getting your hair cut we're very loyal to hair I wouldn't go into a place and I'd get my one hairdresser I wouldn't you know chop and change I'd be loyal for the next five ten years and people were having these relationships but they didn't have with coffee they were treating coffee purely as transactional like it was solving a need for caffeine and that's where I just thought there's this new demographic that are inquisitive about better quality they want better type of atmosphere they want better service they want healthier food and I just looked at the Australian market and I thought there's a reason why Starbucks failed and there's an opportunity to bring it here despite never working a single day in hospitality i had no, i'd never done one shift in a pub in a in a coffee shop in a restaurant i did one catering job in between footy when it's probably when i was earning 18 grand trying to work out how to survive i did like a catering event for my brother who was working for the big group out in bendigo but i didn't know how to you know pour a cocktail or anything yeah. so I, I was the guy who's i got a lot of utility from cleaning up tables and and putting all the cans in a recycle bag, which reminds me of when I was a kid, when I used to go to the G and watch the demons play. And then I would come home with two plastic bags full of um, you know, beer cans and Coke cans yeah. and take them and get five cents a can or two cents a can. <laughs> so anyway, that was my Bendigo. So that's how much experience I had. So I started becoming a student of the, of the industry and I just read as much as I could. And 
I really base the business around two key things. One, customer centricity. So what I missed and I started breaking down like, why do I like going to a coffee shop in Melbourne? Why did the team go every morning and every afternoon? And why did I um, run the tan and then Mm. have a big breakfast, read the paper back to front with poached eggs with a flat white and a ceramic and, and a latte and a glass? Why did I love that experience with Alexandra? Why does she love, um, that experience with me? And, and then I had a good understanding around like cost structures and managing risk because everything I know about hospitality is it's so incredibly risky because the barrier of entry to hospitality is so low. It's quite intuitive, right? You get a lease, you build a bar, you get some coffee, you get a machine. Like It's iterative. You can yeah. put it together. But the complexity is so high because the variability is all linked to your people and people aren't a product. They're up and down. They have preferences they they have dislikes and likes they have days in which they decide they don't want to go to work or they do want to go to work so the the, and you have customers that are very often very demanding so that's the challenge in Mm. hospitality is is it's far more complicated once you start but to to open is is a lot easier than starting a podcast for example um but yeah, you know, I, I just realized that there's this opportunity and I was working in uh, on Park Avenue on 48th and Park in JP Morgan building. And we, you know, I, I was a lot, half the, I'd say a quarter of the office, maybe half of the ANZ office was Australian. And they, I just, they were all desperate for a great coffee. So the first one actually opened two blocks away in a subterranean basement. It's similar to this, but but going down, not up. Yep. No street visibility, no signage. We weren't allowed a sandwich board out the front. You had to get down this decrepit escalator that was constantly broken. And it was the only way you'd find it is through word of mouth. So it was quite elusive, but that was part of the charm and building the brand. Yes. And um, it had all these little trinkets. It had old 80s um, pictures from old footy records and it had old, you know, Footballs and it had um, cricket ball. It was, it was, you know, a bit, a bit, a little bit corny on the edge. Yeah. But it introduced um, the history and the heritage that we were Australian, and I needed to decouple us from the perception that hospitality or Australian sort of, I, I guess, service culture is Crocodile Dundee. It's outdoor um, outback steakhouse, which is an American company, not Australian, and. I needed it to feel more premium, refined, and consistent with what our coffee and hospitality culture is, which is very cosmopolitan, and in most cases, um, very, very premium and elite and um, and sophisticated. So. It started with one, and then it, the second one was next to the New York Stock Exchange in the in the lobby of a building, seventy five year old building. Never had a retail amenity. We had to find water and power, and took a chance on us. And then the third location, which took us to the to really the next stratosphere, is we opened our first cafe, which was in West Village, yes. on the corner of Perry and Greenwich Avenue. And that was the one where Taylor Swift walked in. So you know, was that, that is that just by by chance or word of mouth, or was that like building the hype by that stage? <clears throat> yeah, that was really by word of mouth. Yeah. I, because um, sorry, it was near. Was it was it right to say that it was in the same building as a Victoria's Secret model, or was it? Yeah. yeah like so what, there's a couple of things that are interesting. That? Yeah, so Perry Street was pretty well known. So I knew West Village would be a good spot because I thought I lived there. It was my favorite favorite area of Manhattan, and it feels a little bit like Australia. Um, the leafy trees and not too many avenues, and you walk and townhouses. Really nice spot. And I thought there's so many Australians that walk up Leaker Street to shop and then they turn down Perry Street because that's where Carrie Bradshaw's supposed 
brownstone apartment was from Sex and the City. Yep. So she'd come out the front, Mr. Bigger being the limo. So people every day getting photos out the front of this thing. And Aussies love it. Yeah. They love Sex <laughs> in the City. And like, they'll just continue on and then they'll yeah. go to Bluestone. Yeah. So it was really fortuitous that we open up and we open up next to this spray tan place. And I, I didn't think twice about a solarium spray tan place but sure enough it's the number one spray tan place for all the Victoria's Secret models wow. so we open and the next thing like the most glamorous or some of the most glamorous women in the world are, are walking in and having coffee after their spray tan or you know <laughs> yeah it's been it's the West Village is very popular with a lot of celebs a lot of artists so yeah. you get a lot of actors you get a lot of comedians you get a lot of musicians that live around there and they come in and one of the beauties about bluestone is we treat everybody the same so it doesn't matter if you if you don't have a dollar to your name or you're really wealthy or if you're famous or you're infamous it, it doesn't matter with us mm. everyone gets treated the same same amount of respect and we treat everyone with gratitude and humility including i remember one day when i rocked up there i've told this story a few times i rocked up on a weekend and it's snowing and i'm like oh god when west village gets really busy there's always a queue out the front on the weekend it's dumping snow i go oh i'm gonna see how the team are going hanging in there and i walk out the fr- and as i walk in cameron diaz is sitting outside in the snow having coffee and i'm like what what is it so i go to the general manager who's a melbourne guy tony pantano who um has a business- from ivano yeah yeah, yeah i'm ivano yeah, there you go. So he's got, he's a part of now with only hospitality with Julian. Yeah, yeah, Moose. And sure enough, so I walk in and I go, Tony, what? Why is Cameron Diaz out the front? You know, lost completely. You know, I think about it now. I'm almost embarrassed. Like, yeah. like, he's like, mate, what do you want me to do? She was in the queue. There was people in front of her. She had to wait her turn. That was the one table. I offered yeah. it to her. She said she sit down. And I'm like, that. I'm actually. I'm so Happy proud of you. Yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah. That's why we're special, and that's why we're going to make it. And um, that's that's why you know I'm, I'm really actually really really excited about the yeah. the future. And you should be extremely proud of yourself, mate, because mm-hmm. it is incredible. Before I even you know knew you and knew your story, I did go over to New York and and went to the one in West Village. I do remember this bloke that was serving me, and he was Australian guy. Like we tell straight away, like Australian guy. Yeah. I was like this guy's cool. Yeah. And it was two things. He came up to me and he's like really putting on the accent, and I was like one I'm Australian mate so like, just relax like, I know what you're doing and then two I was like this bloke would dominate New York City like the amount of like he was a very handsome bloke so yeah. I just want do you know who that would have been no okay. but we've had a few yeah um, well, they, they he, was, he was like a typical Aussie guy and I was just like you are so cool and I'd love to be you the amount of dates that the Bluestone <laughs> staff have achieved over the years um, yeah this guy was cool this guy was cool we're gonna get to New York yeah that'd be good I'd love to love to have you a customer I definitely can get you a few coffee cards actually you know (laughs) I have to bring my old AFLPA card. Yes, well. you will. Yeah, okay, you okay, bring, bring one that. of your contracts. And yeah, I'll, I will, I will. Depending on how much you earn, I'll, oh, I'll, God. I'll yeah, no, <laughs> give you more coffee. Not much. Yeah. Um, no, last question <laughs> on this, because this is probably something that's really relevant to where I'm at now, and not to say that I'm going to turn to a venture capitalist and own yeah. a group and what I want to. Yeah. But it's like, how did you take that sole idea of like a small business per se into yeah. then creating it into now your group? For us, we own, we own, operate. We have 
about 55 stores now but we may we have some licensed stores we have one in the fox lot the fox studio lot which is basically now just disney and fox productions i think it's the second largest studio lot in in la we've got a bluestone there it's it's licensed Um, we have one opening in jfk airport we have one opening in newark airport we have one opening in boston logan international airport where um it'll be operated by the the airport operator but we're we're a concession and yeah it'll be look and feel on the same menu as a bluestone same product and we get paid a royalty but but we don't operate it but um building building for me i was always focused on building a brand and i was actually focused on building a lifestyle brand for me i realized i can build this brand that stands for health for human connection for aspiration and so many americans would do anything to go to Australia. It's on their bucket list. Mm. There's probably one or two, but the majority of them, the vast majority, will never go to Australia because it's too far and because it's not ingrained in the culture to explore internationally like it is for us. We're, we're so much more nomadic in that respect. So what does that mean? It meant that like, we had certain standards and we had certain ways in which we were going to operate and how we were going to project externally that had to be really, really consistent. And building a brand is about operating at a really consistent level so when you go in as a customer when you experience that good or service it is it meets your expectations it's not volatile you can't have a brand if one day it's great and one day it's poor and i was also fascinated about how people take a um, a, a commoditized product and an orthodox product and make people pay a premium and the affiliation and the the endorphins they get from uh carrying that label i did it yesterday what did you I, do like I've, i'm getting back into golf yep I had tailor-made clubs yep but i for the life of me i'm the worst fucking golfer in the world i'd hit 39 plus like oh, that's not even on the card but for yep. some reason i need to buy a tire list yeah. Like, and I had to change my whole club set. Yeah, that. well, that's exactly right. When you look about handbags, for example, you could you could have a straw bag that has the same functionality as a, a you know a Birkin oh, bag. I'm or not a, hitting any better with any of these clubs. I'm still shit. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So you've got an Hermes bag or a Vuitton bag or yeah. a Gucci bag. Now that could be anywhere from five grand or thirty grand. Or you could have a straw bag that's probably worth five grand, and they both serve the same functional use they carry things you know carry stuff but one has their brand positioning in the aspiration and they make someone feel special that intangibility and i i it was blending that and the focus on building something that could be scaled and even though out of the gate i wasn't like we're going to do 50 stores i just knew the best chance to do this is to build something that's focused not just on a single unit but on a brand and where people would recognize and have comfort and trust that when they go in the coffee's going to taste the same the fulfillment speed is going to be the same the menu's going to be the same but have certain elements that are very personalized and different so when they could walk in they wouldn't say um it's just a bluestone they would say this is my bluestone and that has that art and that it's part you know it's part art it's part science but it's certainly very methodical that is what's enabled us to scale. But how do you keep that when, you, as you said, your franchise, is it franchising the right word now? No, we're still company owned. Company owned. Yeah, so, so you, we, you own, we own every single one. We, we own all the stores, the, right. brand, the company Do you does. worry about losing that or do you, like how strict are you on 
making sure you're putting the right people in place. Is, that is everything. You're exactly right. Yeah. That's everything. That's the biggest challenge we have. But if you can pull it off, that's where the magic is. And we, we've been able to do that. And a lot of it is we focus on what needs to be uniform and what needs to be bespoke. Mm. Uniform is that the coffee needs to taste the same, same temperature, uh, needs the same milk, needs the same fulfillment speed, needs the same volume. Those things are really, really important when you go into Bluestone. But the fact that the store looks different, that the, the composition of the staff is, is different and variable, that they treat you like a local, which is, hey, Dil, yeah, um, yeah. know your name, face and order. Yeah. Those things everyone wants personalized. Yeah. I feel so good when my coffee guy does yeah. that. Yeah. So, so it's breaking the elements down that need to be uniform and those that need to be um, customized. And you spend all your training and your SOPs and the cultures built around it. And then that's how it scales. And you have such strict guidelines and you have, um, you hold standards and accountabilities that that's what we need to do. And it's not doing it in a rude way. It's just doing it in a very transparent where everyone understands to be their best. They just need to execute their role and we'll support them to do it. And you bring in talent that enables it to happen. What <laughs> is next for you? Like what, where do you see Bluestone going? Um, I know you said before, like, is it wrong for me to say that Bluestone now is is a venture capital company, like, or is it is it a coffee company? Like, well, it's it's it a both? hospitality brand, but it's yeah. funded via um, venture capital, growth yeah. capital. With Bluestone, we're focused on we've got a number of different avenues, so we probably want to go from 50, 55 stores to a hundred stores by the end of next year. Yeah. We are very interested in the product, the CPG consumer product goods space so selling coffee in supermarkets or capsules or yeah, um, okay. our food products so wow. we're investing a lot in that we're investing verticals. a lot in pattern verticals verticals you're exactly, exactly you're right exactly i'm learning there you go <laughs> different channels like direct to consumer so e-commerce amazon wholesale so um there's a lot for us to do. There's obviously the international piece, but the US alone is 330 million people. Wow. So instead of just you know just having Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, um, you have you know 35 cities of this equivalent size. So the opportunity is really really big, and the addressable market's massive. And Starbucks has shown that because they have you know nearly 40,000 stores globally. So there's there's plenty of runway for us to actually stick with our knitting and just keep opening just keep stores going. and then diversify into product because we're big believers in omnichannel. And what does I mean from that perspective? That the product can be sold across a whole variety of different channels. So one is the retail channel. Yep. You walk into a store. One's the home channel. How do we get your beans at home? It could be via our e-commerce site. It could be via Amazon. It could be via when, they, when you buy from target.com. Um, so... We are looking at having engagements with our core customer across where they live, where they work, where they want to hang out, where they look forward to visiting, whether it's um, whether it's in this city or that city. And we want to be that brand where they have great respect and, and trust. And so I think the opportunity is big. And Australian, the Australian and New Zealand coffee culture or that brand, like the, it is a globally known brand that people go, oh, it's an Aussie, co- uh, it's an Aussie cafe. In, whether that's in London, Paris, Hong Kong, Singapore, it is it is out there. We want to be the biggest and the one that is the most scalable because most of them, most of the smaller ones, will be single units, owner operate. Where we want to be a, a, an authentic representation of what premium Australian hospitality is and lifestyle is, which is this blend of health and humanity, and uh, that's what I'm focused on, mate. 
It's unbelievable, mate. It, it's honestly the, probably the most insightful chat I've ever had in my life. I'm not just saying that. Like, I, I've learnt so much today. I've, <laughs> that's, not, that's not saying much for the former guest, mate. No, I, <laughs> I think it is, to be honest. We still the nah. utmost respect. I, 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 but it shows yeah. you what you can learn, right? Yeah. I, I didn't... No one from my family came from hospitality either. So, it's just life's long and life the best thing in life is experiencing new things new opportunities and learning and if you go in with a positive intent and you go in thinking that you're interested in hearing people's stories and being open-minded opportunities will continue to arrive and even though footy uh, was the childhood dream but and it came to an abrupt end and i didn't particularly enjoy it which i'm really sad about I just turned that straight into the next career mm. and I was like, that one's done. I'm into the next one and I'm going to play local footy with my mates, with my old school friends and enjoy that and I'm going to focus on my business career and then I'm going to do that and learn as much as I can about business. I'm going to travel and, uh, and take on opportunities to work overseas and new opportunities and then transition to something else and leave banking and jump into hospitality and then, you know, the next stage it'll be something else and but it'll be, you know, the balance of professional and personal. Now that I've got three kids and an amazing, amazing life partner and, you know, have a good time while, while you're at it. I mean, that's the most important thing. Like mm. great building companies and sounds really sexy and glamorous. It's absolutely not. It's so much hard work, but it is intrinsically, intrinsically rewarding. But you've got to have a good time. You've got to enjoy life because it can be taken away from you and, you know, it's what you're here for. Unbelievable. It, it, it realistically, like holistically as well, comes back to the exact point. It's not what happens, it's how you react to it. I say it every week. You've been that to a T. You've been through all these things. It's got you to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And again, I speak in layman's terms, but you're a doer. A lot of people mm. say they want to do these things. You touched on it earlier. The ideas are there, but it's the execution and it's actually going out and doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm pretty motivated for a few things after that. Um, so, <laughs> That's good. Yeah, mate, honestly, yeah. So am I. Yeah. And I've loved being on this program and I think what you're doing is fantastic. I think it's raw, it's honest, and it's how it is. And more media needs to be orientated around this. Not the perfect Instagram photo, but actual true depiction of what it's like. And uh, there's so one thing that has been amazing in my time meeting a lot of very, very successful famous people is they're all human and no matter how much money they have they're still vulnerable they're still fragile they're still insecure and they're still searching for something and some of the most lonely people i've ever met are the ones that that have the most money they have they're billionaires and they got it all and they would do anything to be in your seat at your age Mm. building a new business that's what that's what keeps the fire going so um you know just continue to learn be be a good person you know, give back as much as you can, lead with positive intent and, uh, and with the right values. And it's amazing how doors open and that's what's happened to me. I think I've just gone about it in a way that that's been, I've been very interested and I've been respectful and humble and said I'll give it everything I've got. And that's how I've got a lot of people to buy into joining Bluestone and a lot of investors who have backed me. Yeah. Very fortunate that the team has enabled me to to develop this company. It has not been the Nick Stone show. I mean, yeah, key part, but it's the team. Yeah, unbelievable, mate. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, from the bottom of my heart, it's been incredible to have you in. Wanted to stick this off for a long time. Definitely lived up to the expectations, and uh, can't wait to get my vaccination. Get over to New yeah. York. Yes. Um, have a couple of those coffees. How many did you say? If I bring my card, was it one for each year or? Yeah, yeah, okay. one for every game, actually. I'm not going to go broke. 41 coffee. Oh, <laughs> you're cheap 
is actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Might have spread that out over yeah, a couple yeah, of trips. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I might go yeah. to every 41 location that I'll just travel. You still have a few spare. Yeah. So, um, yeah. no, uh, if you up. come over, I guarantee you 41 coffees, and we should do a segment. <laughs> In New York. We will. We'll do a Dylan and Friends and I've got some interesting uh, characters for you to meet over I want to meet that guy that I wanted to make out with at your yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, We're going to have to go through the CCTV. <laughs> yeah. I'll be, and, yeah. Uh, and I'm going to tell him, don't overplay your Aussie accent no, again. You can like come that. in, you can have your spray tan and then <laughs> we'll, we'll have a few coffees at, at the Collective Cafe. <laughs> Nick Stone, you're an absolute <laughs> star, mate. There's no surprise as you are where you are and um, I'm so excited for what's to come for you and, and Blue Stone and your family and and life and um and our relationship going forward yeah, i'm sure forward there's to, some right? cool yeah. things so thanks again thanks if that wasn't enough for you and you want even more you're in luck dylan friends is now on patreon dylan best friends if you'd like to learn more you can head to patreon.com forward slash dylan friends or you can head to the link in the show notes Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends Podcast. If you liked the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review, or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends Studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends Podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.